0: and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners. Today, we're going to speak about the International Criminal Court probe into Palestine. Just by way of background, on November the 29th, 2012, the United Nations General Assembly passed Resolution 6719, recognizing Palestine as a non-member observer state. Palestine is ceded to the Rome Statute on the 2nd of January, 2015, with effect from the 1st of April, and the prosecutor accepted Palestine as a state party. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court Ms. Fatou Bensouda, on the 20th of December, 2019, announced an investigation into war crimes allegedly committed in Palestine by Israeli personnel or members of Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups. She said, I'm satisfied that war crimes have been or are being committed in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. Israel has argued that the court has no jurisdiction because Palestine is not a sovereign state. Sadly, Australia sided with Israel. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, condemned this investigation as being an action of pure anti Semitism. On February 5, 2021, the ICC decided by majority that the court's territorial jurisdiction in the situation in Palestine, a state party to the ICC Rome Statute, extends to the territories occupied by Israel since 1967, namely Gaza and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Thus the judges ruled that the court has jurisdiction rejecting Israel's argument to the contrary. I'm very excited to say that we're joined by Professor George Bishadrat, who is an American professor of law He's originally from Tel in Jerusalem. He's currently a professor of law at the University of California. He's worked with the PLC, the Palestinian Legislative Council, on efforts to reform and develop the Palestinian judiciary system, and is a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Palestinian Studies. Good morning, George, how are you?
1: I'm great, Nasser, so nice to be with you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Fantastic, and great to speak to you again. George, one of the things that we'd like our listeners to hear from our Palestinian guests is their Nakba story. Take us through how you ended up in the States.
1: I was born in the United States of a Palestinian father and an American mother. My father had been practicing medicine in Palestine as a as a young man, as a single man. And he had an opportunity in 1946, so before the Nakba, to come to the United States and to do a residency in eye surgery, which had been his specialty. He had been, directly before coming to the United States, he'd he'd opened a clinic in Gaza and had been practicing eye medicine there. So he had this opportunity to come to the United States in 1946. He came, he met my mother, Soon after his arrival, they got married and he decided to, you know, to practice and start a family. The Nakba came and basically foreclosed any opportunity of the family returning at any time. You mentioned correctly that our family's home was in Talbiya, in the west part of Jerusalem. And our home was taken over and expropriated, handed over to Israeli residents. You know, very soon after the well, it, it was taken over by the Haganah during the war, and then it was handed over to high-level Israeli officials. Soon after that, we have remained, and and this was this was true. Essentially, this was also the story of my father's brothers and sister, although they were all in different places. My grandfather, who was the one who actually built the home, and albie died in the 50s um he was actually an activist on palestinian refugee issues from the very beginning he was very, very deeply deeply disturbed and troubled and wanted to help the situation of Palestinian refugees and he died in Jordan i honestly believe of a broken heart and broken spirit i really consider my grandfather an indirect victim of the nakba we've made ourselves a relatively fortunate life in in the united states during the early years of my father's presence here i think he he was not he was he was outspoken actually but mainly concerned with with starting a family and practicing medicine when the 67 war happened and this was this is true for many Arab American Palestinian American families something shifted and it became evident to us that being quiet just wasn't an option and both of my parents including my mother who was Irish American and you know, had no immediate experience of Palestine or the Middle East. Became very active in community efforts and in public speaking and the like. So I grew up in an activist family, and I got involved. I think I had my first publication in a newspaper as a letter to, letter to an editor when I was 14-year-old high school student. So it's been my passion, my professional, the center of my professional work. Much of my research and writing, my doctoral. Dissertation, all of that have all focused on Palestine. And I continue the work today, not only as a, as a law professor, but also these days as a musician. It will stay that way. You know, it's, it's in our blood and it won't go away until there's justice in Palestine.
0: That's fantastic, George Wall. Let's talk about the ICC. And you wrote an article recently, and I really love the very first line in the article. It said, Prosecution and persecution are not the same thing, although it is a standard dodge of the guilty to claim otherwise. I said in my intro about Benjamin Netanyahu saying this is anti-Semitism of the highest degree. Israel has protested, not that it's innocent, but that the ICC shouldn't even be looking at it because Palestine's not a state.
1: Yeah, that's nonsense, as you know. That's... uh... (laughs) <laughs> that 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 is both my my legal and my colloquial judgment, and you know there are many aspects of Israeli behavior in the area that are really essentially indefensible. So the only way, really, they, they can't be defended substantively in any very persuasive manner let's j- just as an example the settlement enterprise on the west bank that has been going on since 1967 and, and has now resulted in the transfer of nearly 700,000 israeli civilians onto you know palestinian territory they have tried beginning in 1967 to elaborate Uh, legal theories to justify the illegal settlements. And basically, virtually nobody has accepted, nobody credible in the academic community or anywhere else has really ever accepted this argument. Of course, until President Trump and uh, Mike Pompeo declared that the settlements are not illegal. And of course, they're not exactly known for their legal scholarship. That's the dodge. I mean, to, you know, to scream that we're being unfairly persecuted this is anti-Semitism, and then to resort behind the scenes to procedural objections. And though it's fairly obvious the direction that those will be taking as we go forward. We've achieved some important progress in getting this preliminary investigation going, but it's a long road from here to actual accountability for Israeli officials.
0: We should just say that there are actually four things that the prosecutor was looking at. One was the Israeli military killings of civilians and destruction of civilian infrastructure in Gaza in 2014, Hamas rocket fire into civilian areas, Israeli sniper fire at the Great Return March, which killed more than 200 Palestinians, and the settlements and the transfer of settlers into the West Bank. One of the facts of the situation as we see it is that Palestine has acceded to the Rome Statute, is accepted by a majority of the United Nations countries to being there, yet movement on prosecution etc on holding Israel to account has been incrementally slow because of the obstinance of the United States aided by the Israel lobby. Where are we at today? I mean, America is not a signatory to the ICC. So they've put uh, sanctions on Bensouda. They've criticized the ICC. Australia filed an amicus brief saying that it didn't have jurisdiction.
1: You know, the sad reality, I think, in both your country and in mine, our adopted countries, to be clear, is that there is political capital to be gained in pandering to pro-Israel interests in both of our countries and elsewhere in Canada and in the UK to lesser extent in other western countries in France and the like in Germany the supporters of Israel have organized themselves have have uh, worked diligently strategically smartly you know for decades to achieve their objectives and do exercise a significant check on foreign policy. And in the United States, for example, let's let's take President Obama, who many expected to be, you know, sympathetic to Palestinians. He was somebody who who knew, you know, as at the University of Chicago was friendly with Rashid Khalidi and and other Palestinians, and he. Kind of, he understood, he got the issue at least better than most American politicians. But in his memoirs, which came out recently, he very concretely and very specifically discusses how costly it was for him politically to do things that were counter to the pro Israel people's objectives and how much, how it was constantly a question for him, where am I going to spend my political capital? And the foreign American politician, and I expect for Australian politicians as well, they don't want to expend a great deal of political capital on Palestine when they have objectives of their own domestic objectives and other foreign policy objectives that take precedence. So we're we're caught in this bind in which politicians, far more politicians actually understand what's getting, what's going on in Palestine than you would imagine from their behavior uh, on the political front and their statements on the political front. Um, in private, they'll say, they'll indicate this understanding. It may be different. I'm not saying that their perspective is like yours, Nasa, or like mine, but it's, at least not like they state things public. So the United States has has certainly been the most active diplomatic protector of Israel in all spheres. Certainly, you know, our record in the Security Council, the, the UN Security Council, we've used the veto power in the UN Security Council to protect Israel against consequences, basically a frustrating accountability for its illegal activities. We've done it 43 times in the history of the United Nations, which is the greatest number of vetoes for any purpose for in relation to any issue. So we're going to be looking at the same pattern of behavior going ahead. I can't predict whether the ICC will ever achieve accountability in this context, but I will say, that even if it doesn't even if this item just remains on the agenda for the coming years it is a win for justice and a win for the Palestinian people and i think we need to think very carefully and strategize very carefully about how to capitalize on and maximize what's occurring ultimately this is a political struggle and it, it you know when israel protests that its legitimacy is being challenged, that's not far from the truth. It is Richard Falk, whom you probably know, a well-known international lawyer and scholar from the United States, speaks explicitly about the legitimacy war. And if you view the ICC measures in light of that legitimacy war, then it casts it all in a different light and emphasizes the positive developments. And we just, you know, we need to be very smart and strategic about how to exploit it, how to use it in terms of publicity, writing, speaking, uh, educating the broad public about what's going on.
0: Indeed. George, one of the startling things for a layperson, perhaps, Israel's uh, definition of pure evil, Hamas. Hamas has agreed to the investigation, though they did say, you know, our rocket fire is legitimate resistance. Hamas has welcomed the decision. It's contrary to Israel, which is supposed to be a beacon, a light unto nations.
1: Right. I respect them for having done that. Uh, I think their willingness to subject their own behavior to critical legal scrutiny is admirable, and it appears that they are willing to suffer adverse consequences if those, in fact, come about. I do think it invites a discussion about how, you know, international law treats colonized peoples and their means and ability to resist colonialism. I am quite certain that if we provided Hamas with F-35s and Abrams tanks, that's an American, you know, make of, of a fighting machine and other sophisticated weaponry, they would be absolutely delighted to use them and they would focus their, you know, they would train their fire on, on Israeli military. In fact, in, in the fighting in 2014, I believe the number was 69 Israeli soldiers were killed and only seven Israeli civilians. Whereas on the Palestinian side, there were 2,551 Palestinians killed of whom something like 1,492 were civilians. I may be slightly off on these numbers, but these are roughly the proportions. Yeah. So how is a colonized people supposed to resist? Do Palestinians have no right of self-defense whatsoever? And I'm not, you know, forgiving or excusing or rationalizing deliberate attacks on civilians by anybody by either side, but the Hamas situation does raise this question about should the standard be the same? Should the legal standard be the same? for people who are uh, resisting colonial occupation and the colonizers themselves. Maybe I'm not issuing a conclusion or stating a conclusion, but this is an issue that at least their submission to the legal process can open up.
0: One of the criticisms, George, of the ICC is, in fact, its targets have been former colonial countries. If you have a look at the list of countries and and the people that have been prosecuted, they've overwhelmingly been African or pe- and people of color. Yes. This is the first time we've gone white, if you will.
1: Right. The rule of law, the the international rule of law is to have any meaning. It obviously cannot only apply to African nations or to other uh, nations of brown and dark-skinned people. Other perpetrators of crimes have to be held to account. And it is for that reason that I think this this possible, this investigation and any prosecutions that may ensue are something that the entire world has a stake in. If we really are serious about about applying international criminal law, it has to be applied equally across the board. And so, you know, not only Israel, but the United States and its behavior in Afghanistan, are you know need to be subject to the same standards of as any other nation so i think if and it it is crucial for the legitimacy of the of the icc that it follow through and move scrupulously with these prosecutions and i i I think they've done a they've been very cautious very slow in, in in you know in coming to this but the fact that they did so you know uh reaction is better late than never and it's uh i'm i'm grateful to the prosecutor that she uh that she brought it to this point i think she's been extremely dignified in the face of a great deal of indignity that's been heaped on her i um, think she's done an, a marvelous job and uh, i'm just sorry that she will be leaving soon you know because her term uh is is up i th- i believe it may be in august and she's going to be succeeded by a, a, a gentleman from the UK and in a letter that Boris Johnson recently uh, issued uh, it's very clear that the UK is expecting his accession to that office his name is Sajid Khan and there's uh, also a woman judge from the UK who will be joining the court his expectation is that you know that they will contribute to snuffing out the, uh, the investigation of Israel. Uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know the individuals the, the, you know, who will be taking over. But I do know that the, you know, that that international law is is powerfully respected in the UK uh, legal community. And I'm hopeful that this individual will not simply be the political tool that Boris Johnson apparently expects him to be.
0: Let's hope so. I mean, you, you were right about what the, the amount of pressure and defamation heaped on Bensouda by Israel and its supporters was, you know, the smear campaign was without peer.
1: Yeah, yeah. I will say one one other positive thing that has occurred is, and since my article was was published, is that the Biden administration has lifted the sanctions that were imposed on her and uh the travel ban on her and her family members and other members of the of the court so i mean which was that was a, a measure that president trump adopted which was purely outrageous just just unheard of in the international legal community and at least that positive development has occurred
0: yes indeed one of the things that the ICC investigation allows for, which is different to what's happened previously when crimes against Israel have been reported to be investigated, you know, in particular, like the Jenin massacre in in 2002. The difference here is the ICC is able to target individuals, not not just states, and, and can issue arrest warrants, which makes it legally incumbent upon ICC members to enforce the court's decisions. Yes. So arrest warrants could and should and will be hopefully issued against those parties, Palestinian or otherwise, who have been found to, that they need to answer crimes?
1: Absolutely. Yes, uh, this is this is extremely significant as far as I'm concerned. I think, you know, it, it is one thing to have accusations leveled against nations in the abstract. And it's another thing when it really actually hits home to actual individuals to you know military officials and in Israel's case it's going to go beyond military people it will also go into uh, civilian civilian leaders as well.
0: In an ideal sense you know if, we, if if you were the prosecutor or I was George we'd be rounding up testimonies we'd be issuing arrest warrants for individuals that, that's our best case wish. The, the worst case wish is that um, this new lawyer Khan comes in from Britain gets a brief from Boris's people and decides, in fact, uh, Bensouda was wrong. There is, no, there is no jurisdiction and shelves the entire investigation. I, I'm asking you to hypothesize here, but wh- wh- where do you think we might actually end up?
1: I, I don't think it will go in that direction because there is already a judgment from the pretrial chamber of the International Criminal Court Saying that Palestine is a state for purposes of the Rome Statute, at least. It didn't draw conclusions about uh, Palestine as a state for general international legal purposes, but it said it's adequate uh, to become a state member of, of the Rome Statute, and also that it has territorial jurisdiction over the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. So I think it will be difficult for the prosecutor in view of that authoritative judgment from the court to go back on that particular point of law. Now, are there other points of law? Absolutely. And are there other ways in which the the investigation could peter out? Of course. One of them would be that there would be regarding the requirement of what's called complementarity. Jurisdiction of of the ICC is supposed to be complementary to that of nation state to the legal systems of nation states and where the and it is only supposed to prosecute in situations in which nation states fail to do so and the the prosecutor's decision to open up the preliminary preliminary uh, investigation stated explicitly that they would be continuing to monitor and to look at the question of complementarity to see if, in fact, the parties are adequately investigating themselves. Now, Israel, of course, does have a system of internal investigations, its own courts, but also, you know, the military disciplinary system. And it's Prime Minister Netanyahu has already declared that they they plan to show to the court that Israel is capable of and does, in fact, invest and has, in fact, investigated itself. And so this is one area in which the prosecutor could allow Israel off the hook if the prosecutor were to agree that in fact Israel conducts self-investigation and that these are adequate to the task. Now, there are a couple of reasons why that might be challenging might be difficult. And that is because of the scope of the uh, investigation that has already been mapped out by Ms. Bensouda. That scope includes the settlement enterprise. And that is one, you know, whereas the war crimes allegedly committed by Israeli troops You know, whether at the at the Great March of Return, shooting at unarmed civilians who are not causing them any imminent danger, putting them in in imminent danger, those kinds of things the Israeli military has investigated. A few, a few minor cases. There's been a tiny little bit of discipline. Generally speaking, punishment is extremely light, et cetera, et cetera. But at least there's something there. With respect to the settlements that's, you know, there's never been an investigation of politicians for their participation in what may amount to war crimes under both the Rome Statute and the Geneva Convention. And therefore, it will be harder for the Israelis to establish the complementarity, to erect the shield of complementarity with respect to that offense. Now, there's another thing. The prosecutor's statement regarding the investigation also clarified that, you know, their outline of the crimes that they believed there was sufficient evidence to believe had occurred was not limited. That did not limit the scope of the investigation. There, and it was the unreasonable on the grounds of a, a mere preliminary investigation to limit the scope. If they got out into the field, they started investigating and they found that there were broader crimes or other crimes. Uh, there's nothing in the preliminary investigation, the parameters described in her statement that that bar broader investigation. And I, um, this is particularly, I think, significant if the prosecution were to consider the crime of apartheid which is a crime under the rome statute apartheid you know the crime of apartheid under the rome statute basically consists of inhumane acts of enumerated types and of which israel has committed many that are in support of a system of i'm not quoting the exact language i'm paraphrasing to the best of my recollection, but it, it is acts that are in furtherance of a system of racial discrimination and or domination by one group over another. And that, of course, is another offense that, you know, that Israel does not investigate. So there, there is this, now it would be, I would think it would be fairly ambitious and uh, bold on the part of the prosecutor to you know to investigate a possible crime of apartheid, because that really goes to the very basis of the whole Israeli rule—not only of the occupied territories, but you know of of Israel itself. You're probably aware. You're a very educated person, and I'm sure many of your uh, readers and, and listeners are. Aware of the fact that B'Tselem, the prominent and very well-respected Israeli human rights organization, recently came out with a report saying that Israel is a an apartheid state, basically from the river to the sea. It's you know, of course, we've had charges of of apartheid about Israel's occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip for for a long time, but for the first time, an Israeli organization. Now, I. I also made these arguments, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but to have it come from an Israeli organization saying, you know, this is the whole thing is, is an apartheid system. It's a functioning one state reality in which only Jews have privilege. It is established to maintain Jewish supremacy from the river to the sea. That's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty remarkable development. Will a prosecutor... See that and and be courageous enough to take that on. I doubt it, but it would be exciting. It would it, it is possible to push for it. It is possible to write about it. It's possible to you know to to uh, discuss it and and you know and sort of have it become part of public discourse. So uh, these these are ways in which I think the the, the you know the prosecution op, op- the investigation opens up a lot of scope for discussion, argument, and hopefully wider and better understanding of what's actually going on there.
0: Fantastic, George. Well, we look forward to speaking again when Netanyahu's in cuffs for ICC investigation, not for the corruption uh, that he's facing internally within Israel. Inshallah. George, thanks so much.
1: Absolutely, Nasser. Thanks so much.
0: That was the amazing Professor George Bishabla joining us from the west coast of the united states and i'm sure you'll agree if you were an israeli war criminal or member of the knesset that authorized those illegal settlements and illegal actions in gaza and continue to perpetrate the crime of apartheid i'd be worried because their hague moment their nuremberg trial moment can't be far away because as we know justice cannot and will not be denied and we will all be free one day Thanks for joining us on Palestine Remembered. Make sure to tell your friends and share the podcast. I'll put a link to George Prashadrat's article in the podcast so you can have a read of that piece. The 17th to the 23rd of April each year is Palestinian Prisoner Week. We send our thoughts and prayers and love and support in solidarity of all those Palestinian prisoners cruelly imprisoned by the apartheid regime of Israel. Many children taken from their homes in the middle of the night, mothers, members of parliament and our men imprisoned for crimes against the occupation. A sad indictment on the alleged only democracy in the middle east we're coming into may when we commemorate nakba when palestinians lost palestine free palestine melbourne's organizing a rally on the 22nd of may at 1 p.m at the state library victoria so put that in your calendars from now saturday the 22nd of may at 1 p.m hope to see you there thanks for listening share the podcast and remember there's never been a better time for a free palestine